0: Johnny, you love YAML, though, don't you? You're basically a YAML engineer.
1: Oh, yeah. That's, that's pretty <laughs> much all I do all day.
0: To you, YAML stands for Yes, another markup language. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes exactly yeah i have it with my coffee in the morning for lunch before bed i mean it's great it's great
2: yeah. i always feel like i have to apologize whenever i use yaml <laughs> i mean it's so cool these days to hate on mm. you know whatever it is like you should have who knows maybe i should have been using scheme or something
1: no it's fine um, it's you fine. Know. you know we need to, we need to get over ourselves we need to stop complaining <laughs> about yaml it's fine big thanks to our partners,
3: Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at LaunchDarkly.com. What's up Gophers, our friends over Gravitational made a big transition at the end of 2020 to rebrand as Teleport and shared a new product announcement to showcase the direction they're taking. Teleport is operating from a vision of being able to run and access software anywhere in a secure and compliant manner something they call environment-free computing. With Teleport, engineering teams can quickly access any resource anywhere using a unified access plane that consolidates access controls and auditing across all environments, infrastructure, applications, as well as data. Teleport server access lets you SSH securely into Linux servers and smart devices with a complete audit trail. Teleport Kubernetes access lets you access Kubernetes clusters securely with complete visibility to access and behavior. And finally, Finally, Teleport application access lets you access web apps running behind NAT and firewalls with security and compliance. Try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted, or open source. Head to goteleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, goteleport.com.
1: Let's
3: do it. It's Go Time.
4: Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Join 7,300 of your fellow Gophers and follow go time FM on Twitter. We post highlights from past episodes, links to interesting projects and repos, notifications for the live show, and of course, those oh-so-popular, unpopular opinion polls. Once again, we are at go time FM. Follow along. Okay, let's get into it. Here we go. Hello there, and
0: welcome to go Time. I'm Matt Raya, and today we're talking about Porter SH. It's a kind of really cool way to package up and deploy your applications. We're going to hear and meet the creator and one of the main contributors, Carolyn von Slyke. Hello, Carolyn.
2: Hi, nice to be here today and see everyone again.
0: Welcome. Yeah, we've missed you. It's been so long.
2: I know, I know. Hopefully we can all get back together again soon at a GoForCon.
0: Oh, we can but dream. Carolyn has made open source her home. And according to my notes, you persist at gardening, despite all indications that you should give up. Is that right?
2: Yes, I do. I torment the poor little green things in my yard <laughs> constantly. And yeah. you know, I try, I try to geek out on like water meters and automatic watering and all sorts of things. And I mean, I've killed moss, Matt. Moss. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Impressive. Wow. But I persist...
0: Yes, well, there you go. We're also joined, you heard his voice then, it's Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Hello. You kind of did that in a British, a little bit of a British accent. A sense, yeah, I wasn't sure you'd
1: notice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've got British ears. can <laughs> can hear. I can, listen, I can hear it anywhere.
1: Yeah, I can see them too.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Are you good at gardening?
1: Well... I don't know. That's the thing. Mm. My front yard has had a bunch of uh, sort of uh, dead spots. Mm. I've recently sort of uh, went outside, did a bunch of work to just you know fill those in kind of thing. Had to like YouTube a bunch of videos. How do you like you know what's the nature of grass? You know, know. (laughs) how do you repair grass? How do you fix grass? How do you plant grass? How do you keep weeds out of your grass? So. Yeah, I know a lot about grass.
0: Are you just trying to find an excuse to legitimize your internet searches? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I was just searching for actual grass. information about grass officer.
1: Yeah, like actual literally like grass in the ground, not like the other kind of grass, just in the ground grass. Yeah. Well, I guess that yeah. comes from the ground too, doesn't it? Yeah, The it other does, kind yeah, of grass. Yeah. Yeah. The other kind, yeah. 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 We're yeah, going to save yeah. that
0: for Go Time, we'll do a Go Time <laughs> green edition. <laughs> We'll save that chat for, actually, to be fair, yeah, I'm very interested in uh, getting into that, like plants and gardening and things like that. I feel like it would be a very therapeutic and so different to tech that mm-hmm. you can kind of get a good break, you know?
2: Yeah, I think a yeah. lot of people in tech fall into that, where they, you're either a goat farmer, cheese farmer, or again, like some people, like Amy in tech, has, her entire house is a jungle, you know? It's an escape. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. And then, of course, people like Alex Ellis come along and make Grow Lab and they bring tech back into plants. Yeah. And there maybe. are a few apps like that where you can, they help you do that.
2: And you that really shouldn't you. bring tech back into plants, though. I feel like yeah. you're trying to escape. I know. Don't, don't bring your torture with you.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> Need to break. That's the thing.
1: Or it could be the uh, marrying of, of your two loves. I don't know. That's thing. yeah, different things <laughs> to different people, you know?
2: It's also I can submit a pull request to my garden. You know, <laughs> oh. I haven't haven't reached the pinnacle yet.
0: That could be how you pull weeds.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. That's good. I do like that. I like the idea that we could have tech just tell me what to do, like when to water stuff and what to look for and maybe some machine learning to <laughs> I can show it a photo and it can say, Yeah, you're doing all right or you know
2: Yeah, Twitter's getting pretty close to that though. I often will send a picture of whatever horrible thing has befallen my garden. And within Mm. minutes, I have so many people telling me I'm a bad person and I've done things wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just like tech. It's like Mechanical Turk, but with opinions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, okay, so speaking of opinions, let's get talking about Porter. This is a very exciting little project. Maybe you could just tell everyone at home and wherever they are, to be fair, I don't know where they are. I don't track people. I try not to anyway. Maybe you could tell them wherever they are, while respecting their privacy, what Porter is.
2: Sure. Um, To be honest, I've always struggled with explaining it because it can do a lot of things. So I I like to simplify it this way is imagine the thing you absolutely should not do, which is use curl and you install something by piping it to bash. I mean, ideally Mm -hmm. with sudo, right? Because you just, Go all in if you're going to do this. (laughs) And what I'd love to be able to do, though, is instead of yelling at someone and saying, don't do that, you're a bad person, you should feel horrible for even thinking that it should be easy to install something, what if we just made something similar to that secure so that Mm. it wasn't a terrible thing to do? And in fact, you could do something like that in production to set up infrastructure and Mm. your application. So what Porter is, is it creates essentially like a Docker container that has everything you need to install your application and what your application runs on as well. So maybe you have some Terraform scripts to set up your infra. You obviously, like everyone does, you have horrible bash that you don't show anyone that actually makes everything work. Maybe you have kubectl commands and manifests that you're running as well, like Helm maybe sneaking in there. It doesn't really matter what it is, but there's all this little bits and pieces that you need to glue together to actually install your app. like Think of every installation page you've ever been to for a project. They kind of go, skip over where you got a cluster from, how you set up DNS, Cloudflare, anything like that. And they just go, oh, just run this one simple command. And they've kind of like left you high and dry. Because mm-hmm. there's really a lot more to it. So what this lets us do is take all of that logic to actually deploy your app and ship it to customers. Ship it, ship it to people so they can use it. And then you can just, you know, run a command like Porter install. And you don't have to know very much in order to use it, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. So you can use that then to really deploy anything. And is this what you mean by it can sort of do lots of different things?
2: Yeah, so we've deployed virtual machines to DigitalOcean, Kubeflow and like ML pipelines to Azure, people are using it with AWS, with their Kubernetes clusters, it really doesn't matter like what buzzword you put inside of it, <laughs> it can ship any buzzword. It's really useful like that.
0: <laughs> oh, that'd be a great strap line for underneath the title on the website. <laughs> we can ship any buzzword to
1: any other <laughs> buzzword.
2: Not sure my PM would appreciate that, but luckily he's not here to
0: censor me. So that's interesting then, you mentioned a PM. How did the project start and who's involved and sort of how does it run? That's really interesting. Yeah, it's open source, isn't it?
2: It is. It is all open source and was actually developed in open source collaboratively, collaboratively with other companies. So mm. Microsoft, Pivotal, Datadog, Docker, and a couple other companies got together and said, we want to solve this problem of shipping, not just an application, but the deployment logic along with it. And they came up with a specification called the Cloud Native Application Bundle specification. And I never want to say that again, because it's too much. And they brought me in and my friend Jeremy Ricard to consult on it and give our opinions on how the spec is shaping up and could someone use it. And we just got nerd sniped, to be honest. Like I flew in, I met them all, talked to them and said, well, I have this problem, but I felt like they defined a runtime that said, this is how technically we're going to line up all the pieces, you know, put shell scripts in Docker magic. But I wanted something that a user like me, who has been dropped into terrible situations before, like one time I was on call at Rackspace for their documentation website. Hmm. And I'd never used the site. I've never deployed the site. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know the tech it was on. It was, I think it was a combination of like Ruby and other things like that. And it was a custom app I'd never seen before. And they were like, you're on call for the next week. Have fun. And with something like this, I could have actually managed that a lot better than just mm-hmm. like scraping through a, a repository and figuring out just how screwed I am. And so I loved the idea of the spec, but didn't see a good way that someone who wasn't familiar with it would be able to use it. So Jeremy and I decided, oh, we're going to make a tool that kind of means you never need to say the word CNAB again. And you don't need to know what a bundle is or anything else. And you can just focus on, what does my app need? Because mm-hmm. that yeah. that's my thing is like, I really care about usability and things like that. I'll probably never be taken seriously as a developer because that's where I like concentrate all my time is trying to like ease friction and make it so that people can, their intuitive way, the way that they wanted to try to do it the first way is probably actually the way it's going to work, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense.
0: Yeah, it does make sense. And actually, I think it really resonates with me that user experience, we think of UX sometimes, don't we, as just the front end. Sometimes we even think of it as just the CSS, just the thing that makes it look a certain way. But the user experience is really much deeper than that and should go, I think, throughout the system. Like its influence should be felt that far.
2: Yeah, I think the word user, I think, throws people off a lot. I like to think of it as people experience. If there's a person somewhere in a process having to make something something work, it doesn't matter if they're the systems administrator or the person on the other end of the site or the developer who's you know, tasked with dealing with these APIs, maybe during the CI/CD pipeline process, all of those people should agree that the process doesn't suck and doing this isn't awful Mm -hmm. and that people have like listened to their feedback on how to make things fit what they were actually trying to do instead of forcing them to fit themselves to the solution you envisioned.
0: I think the project is all the better for that mindset. And you can tell when you look at Porter as an example, you can tell it's had that kind of, attention given to it and you could similarly some projects you can tell they've been designed kind of the other way the concepts are leaking out because of realities underneath and so you know you can understand how that happens but you're right I mean I think any project is going to be more successful when you think of it from it's that empathy thing with the people that are going to be using it and we do sometimes forget that APIs are used by people yeah. They, although runtime, of course, it's a computer that's doing the actual talking, but you know when we actually consume that API, we're, that's where people, aren't we?
2: Yeah, yeah. You just have to be aware of what the blast radius is, I guess, of everything that you're doing. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, my first impression, okay, of this project. Well, let me take a step back. I guess I've already had a first impression, but I'm trying to contextualize it, right? So, hear me out. Hear me out. Yeah. If I'm used to packaging or sort of in my ecosystem as an SRE like there's different methodologies there's different technologies for certain things different concepts different philosophies right for packaging and shipping an app right the broad term of shipping an app right some of the tools in our tool set includes things like you know CloudFormation, terraform you know all these kinds of tools and I'm sort of seeing a bit of that in here but I'm not sure how tightly those concepts are I'm trying to wrap my head around sort of not just you know Porter, and there's a similar project called Duffel, I believe, that sort of are based on the CNAB sort of spec. So I'd really like it for you to sort of help me understand sort of what problem does CNAB as a whole solve, right? And then that sort of informs sort of how I think of tools like Porter and, and Duffel and whatnot.
2: Yeah, I think the one thing that always helps me understand this and explain it is that Porter isn't, replacing any one of the tools you use currently. It's a packaging format that allows you to bring them all together in a way that is much easier to use. So I'd like to walk through an example of what something looks like without CNAB, without a bundle helping you, and then what it could look like inside a bundle, because I think that'll help answer the question of, like, where does Terraform come in or things like that.
0: That sounds great. Could you just clear up? What's CNAB, just for anybody unfamiliar?
2: It's all right. Oh, sorry. Cloud Native application bundle, and it's the specification. Right, so that's the spec. Yeah, so we have a specification so that if you wanted to make your own, so for example, Datadog has their own tool, similar to Porter, that they use in-house that's highly optimized for what they do. Mm. And the bundles that they create could be run by other tools that understand this specification as well. Um, And it just helps you avoid lock-in to be honest and also customize it to what you're doing because there's no like one size fits all for some of these things. People have very, very specific CI CD pipelines. And if you can work with it, you know, you can make something a lot better but still have it be usable so I could pull in a bundle that maybe Microsoft or Google or someone else published and I could still use it in my own pipeline. So let's say that I've come onto a new team and I need to be able to support this application. And so they go, okay, well, don't worry about it. We have, I hear this a lot. And like, maybe you're really cooler than this, but like what I've seen at companies I've come on to is we have like a DevOps repo or maybe a directory inside their repository that has essentially like scripts and markdown files that describe how to support it, how to do new builds, how to cut releases, how to like push out hot fixes, all sorts of things. And so you're like, okay, first of all, I need to find this repo because you never know where it is. It's, it's always somewhere, but it may not be in the obvious place. And then I need to clone it. Hopefully I have like credentials to actually clone that repo. I define that magic directory, right? That says, this is how I should do all this. And then if I'm lucky, there's instructions. So let's go with the lucky path. They're like, you need to have installed on your computer Terraform this version. You also need to have kubectl this version and Helm this version. You also need to have, if you're really lucky, they tell you the credentials you need to access what all these are going to work with, like the destination cluster where you're deploying. And then they say, okay, now I want you to run Terraform apply. They may not tell you like, how to use Terraforms. So you just kind of have to know. <laughs> and then the steps just keep going like that. And you're like, okay, oh well, actually I needed these three environment variables set because they assumed I knew how Terraform was going to authenticate or how kubectl was going to work. Like, oh, I should have set the cube Config environment variable and the context should have been set to this. If all that's mumbo-jumbo, it doesn't matter. The idea is it is mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> You've got all these things that you need to keep in mind about the different tools. And sometimes when you have different tools, you have handoff points between those tools. So maybe I lay down the infrastructure first with Terraform or ensure it's in, in its proper state And then out of it, I may get a database connection string or something like that. And I need to now get that into like a Helm variable so I can use it in my chart when I deploy my software. So my software can connect to the infrastructure that I've laid down. And so these, you end up usually with bash scripts that end up orchestrating, laying some things down, maybe running some tests to make sure that DNS or something is actually resolving and then scraping environment variables or getting things together so that you can pass information from one step to the next. And it's a lot to piece together. And even if there are scripts, you don't always know which scripts to run. Oftentimes scripts are decomposed and a whole bunch of them. And then if you know, there's one magic script that handles maybe chaining them all together. And it can be very intimidating, especially if it's 2 AM and the first time you've ever seen this repo is because you just got paged right? That's like the terror. And that's what I've experienced personally. And someone did a ton of valuable work that like, we don't want to throw away, we just want to build on. We want to build on these Terraform scripts, the Helm charts, all the Bash scripts, because someone has figured out how this should work. What we'd like to do is take that experience of piecing it all together and following documentation and knowing which scripts to run and bring it into a way that's consistent across toolchains and, like, environments. So I could change this whole thing to we store all of our software and their deployments in a Docker registry, like Docker Hub, maybe we have something internally. So I could go there and just look at a single page and see this is all the things that I could deploy. Right, I could deploy our team blog, I could deploy all of our cool microservices, things like that. And then with one command, I could say, Porter explain, and I could give it the name of one of those bundles, like, we'll just say WordPress for the moment. And it would tell me, great, WordPress needs a cube configuration file, and it could even have a note to say where you could find it. And it could say things like, here's how you can change, like, customize the installation. You can set a title, you can change the admin password, you can seed it with a bunch of information from here, install these six plugins by default things like that. And so I can read it and go, this is everything this bundle can do. And this is how I can change what it's gonna do when I try to run it. And so then let's imagine like fast forward, I'm doing the 2 a.m. patch and I need to bump from WordPress 1.1 to 1.2, I could run Porter upgrade and then give it the new version I want. And it'd be able to reuse everything it had done previously, any parameters that had been customized and then just change the version for me. And I didn't have to read extensive documentation. And once you've learned Porter, what's kind of neat is that if I go to another team in my company and they also happen to use Porter, that 2AM hotfix looks the same. Even if one team uses Terraform and one team is actually Windows-based and has PowerShell and Chocolaty and all sorts of other things involved, it doesn't matter. It's going to look the same because the tech stack and all those great scripts and tools and everything else are actually packed inside the bundle. I don't know if that helps I kind of like outline the differences of what it what it could do. But like Terraform doesn't go away and all the domain knowledge you have about working with these tools is just built on top of.
1: Right. So if I understand this correctly and great explanation by the way, that totally makes sense. If I understand what that gives me then is basically it takes sort of the the knowledge of how to use all the different pieces of the puzzle to bring something together and then what sequence right and what information you're going to need for each piece of the puzzle right and just basically just lay it lays it all out for me i can just run one command and it just takes care of everything for me in the right sequence and telling me what it's doing along the way and if i need to understand what it's doing i can do a port explain and it tells me exactly what makes up the bundle what each of them is going to need what should i go find elsewhere i assume so if i need credentials for something it's going to tell me hey this particular step requires these things make sure you have this and that set up and whatnot so is there sort of a is it designed to just do a full automation just a full run through once you run the install or could it like you know during the process sort of pause and says, hey you need this information i couldn't find it or something like that is there any, yeah. any activity
2: it, it tells you up front everything you're going to need. So you won't be surprised 30 minutes in that you need a GitHub token. And right. then you're like, oh, shoot, I don't have it. <laughs> it. It gives you all that info of what you need up front. And it also gives teams a way to store that securely. So you could have a team like HashiCorp vault or pick a cloud, pick a vault, doesn't matter. right? You've got a place where you can put your secrets and share it as a team. And then you can associate it and say that in the dev environment, we all use this set of credentials when we install things. So you don't have to run around and try to find all them yourself. Some things you don't reuse between people. So Mm -hmm. for example, if I actually had AWS creds, I had Carolyn (laughs) Mm -hmm. on the name, Johnny, you wouldn't be using my AWS creds. You'd be prompted to find your own from somewhere, like look deep inside yourself and Find some creds, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, you can share a whole bunch of other information with each other and reuse it across team members. So it's easier for one person to step in for another without having to again have all this operational knowledge. I think is what kind of comes down to and reducing how much you need to know about how the sausage of your software was made.
1: Well, depending on how you want it, which side of the bread you want to butter, right? So <laughs> this could be the tool for those who don't know how the sausage is made or don't care to know how the sausage is made. As long as the tool just does the thing that it says on the tin.
2: Yeah, that is the idea. And it depends on who you are. So let's say for example, that I'm a megacorp, and I have a super invasive it who wants everyone to be the same and use the same tools and use the same version of the tools. And I want to know what is being used for example, by everyone they like this because there's things like supply chain security baked into this where we're validating digests on everything checking checksums and ensuring that what we built in CI is what we're deploying in production so they they care about that kind of stuff and being able to see what people are are doing and have way too much control like that's not like me personally at heart but like I know that that's who uses it a lot um what's kind of fun is for like small side projects is, I don't know about you, but like I have big, huge ideas and I'll like work on it for two weeks. And during those two weeks, I will understand how that cloud provider works and how their weird function as a service works and all sorts of things. And then six months later when I haven't touched it, I don't remember how any of those things work. And to be honest, most of it has probably changed and I definitely don't have the right version of whatever command line tools and libraries and things need to be installed on my dev machine, because I've probably wiped it since then. And what's kind of fun is that if you took advantage of the time when you understood it to put it inside of a bundle, like automate whatever you needed to do say deploy a function as a service, put it in your bundle, and now six months later, I can have total amnesia, have no idea how this works, and still run an install or an upgrade or incrementally work on the code and have completely forgotten how the actual infrastructure works underneath it. Which, you know, maybe shame on me for not always remembering these things, but, you know, side projects being what they are, it's actually incredibly helpful for me to not lose, like, progress every single time because I've got to get back up to speed on, like, how everything was actually put together.
3: This episode is brought to you by Linode. Gone are the days when Amazon Web Services was the only cloud provider in town. Linode stands tall to offer cloud computing developers trust, easily deploy cloud compute, storage, and networking in seconds with a full-featured API, CLI, and cloud manager with a user-friendly interface. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, scale, and support you need to launch and scale in the cloud. Get started with $100 in free credit at leno.com slash changelog. Again, leno.com slash changelog.
0: For me, even if I'm using the exact same technology with the exact same versions and everything, sometimes they'll just be like, "Oh, there is a secret. There is a secret that I have to have, or it doesn't work." And if it is a side project, or if it's quite a young project, sometimes you won't have done, like you wouldn't have hardened that experience. If the secret's missing, you might just be getting a panic somewhere. You might just have strange behaviour. So. Yeah, that thing you say about take advantage of the time where you know it, it's a bit like when you make notes in a meeting, Mm -hmm. Like you're making those notes at that time, because that's where all the information is fresh. And later, it's much more difficult to kind of retrofit that, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, you often never get those little things back. And you repeat the same Google searches six months later, (laughs) and you find your old posts on Stack Overflow. And you're like, oh, yeah, I maybe knew how to do this once, (laughs) you know? I mean, it doesn't get rid of the, the hard part. You had to know it at some point. There is no magic, right? You had to figure out how to automate it, which is always more difficult than doing it manually in a, you know, piecemeal sort of fashion as you discover it. So like that hard work is always there. What it's doing is saving that hard work in a better format so that it doesn't like reduce over time. You don't like lose little bits and pieces of, oh, and I should have called this, this, and this. Like the documentation is there and the documentation is one way you try to help yourself preserve all those things that you've learned, right? But if you're actually able to bake it into something that every single piece about it is automated, then there's nothing to forget.
0: Do you recommend that people start off with Porter, even for side projects? Or is it like you do it manually and fight with the system? And then once you know what to do, you then would bring Porter in?
2: I think that's like test-driven development. Different people do different things. Like my coworker makes the bundle first. And to be honest, he's more successful than I am at managing anything in production. So that's probably the way to go because you can iterate. But to be honest, I feel like when I'm learning how to deploy a new thing, because I don't normally support things in prod. Like I write open source software and I make dev tools and things like that. So for me, the process of figuring out And reminding myself, okay, this is how I spin this up and secure it for real, not just like dev laws. Like actually securing something is usually this iterative process where it's me and a doc site. And I'm going over maybe one command six times trying to get it right. Like I don't want a bundle in the way. (laughs) You know, I definitely don't want it like checking 15 things to make sure that they were done properly before doing that one command I'm interested in. But once I've got it to the point where I've gotten it to work once, like I'll stay awake for the extra hour and put it in the bundle and be like, okay, got it figured out, lock it in before, you know, I forget it all. hmm
1: So what does uh, if you allow me to go into the weeds a little bit here, what, what does Porter work with? Is it like YAML, JSON? What does a porter file look like?
2: Yeah. You're gonna hate me. Right at the moment it's YAML, right? I've had so many requests to have it be more programmable so that you could put your own language in front of it. Like Lua was one that people were kind of interested in. There's, there's a couple other different things that people wanted to program it in. But we had to be realistic based on how many people were working on it. This is Carolyn waving her hand right now. You can't see this on the podcast, <laughs> but like, this is the person who's writing it and supporting it. And so I had to focus on what would get most people working and successful. And then those really motivated people who love Lua or various things like that, maybe they would contribute (laughs) instead some of the hooks and things. And I've had a lot of contributions that way of design ideas so that I'm able to put in the groundwork for where someone could contribute these things later and not have it be like a massive rewrite on my part. So where I can, I get a ton of feedback from people who really care about this, And I make sure that if they had time later, they could come in and add a plugin or or something like that to make it automatable.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Johnny, you love YAML though, don't you? You're basically a YAML engineer.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's (laughs) pretty much all I do all day. Yeah, just- To
0: you, YAML stands for, yes, another markup language. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yes exactly yeah i have it with my coffee in the morning for lunch before bed i mean it's great it's great
2: i always feel like i have to apologize whenever i use yaml i mean it's so cool these days to hate on you know whatever it is like you should have who knows maybe i should have been using scheme or something
1: no it's fine Um, it's fine. you know we need to we need to get over ourselves we need to stop complaining about (laughs) yaml it's fine
2: i'm more excited that it works but yeah it does (laughs) it works and it works with yaml
0: (laughs) To be honest, it's a very pragmatic choice, that, though. If you're talking about meeting people where they already are, uh, I can see why YAML actually is the choice that should have been made. I liked what you said, Carolyn, about you've kind of allowed it in the design some way. You've kind of allowed this idea that maybe people could extend this in some way and do different things. Yeah. And I think that's quite an interesting idea because, you know, often when we're designing systems just by making different choices when you design apis and, you, and implementations actually you can enable future things like that you can make things pluggable with just a slight bit of foresight but of course you can go too far with that too so how did you strike that balance did it sort of just come quite naturally between you know because you could abs- you can abs- <laughs> this is an abstraction anyway isn't yeah, it? it so is. maybe it's okay but How was that design process when it came to implementing the spec? There must be lots of choices you've got to make.
2: Yeah, I think the first decision was, do we want to be extensible, right? And Mm. right off the bat, I did not want to make a product that only worked with the things I knew in the Mm. ways that I was comfortable doing them. So for example, Microsoft was paying me to do this. So the obvious choice that I was definitely being told, you know, by people who pay me money, that it should be fully integrated first class experience for Azure, for example. And while that sounds really cool, I wanted someone to be able to have it work with a $5 droplet on DigitalOcean or something like that, because I'm cheap, you know, and maybe somebody else has the Google free tier or something like that. Like I wanted to be able to work with all these things. I knew I couldn't write all those things. And I was never going to have the domain expertise and all those various things to be able to do those well. So instead I did and I you know, told my boss, like, oh, it will be fully integrated with Azure. And then just quietly said to myself, and anybody else on any cloud could write the same thing I did. And mm. I don't have any special privileged access because I wrote the tool. Everything goes through the plugin system. Everything goes through the mix-in system for authoring. So everyone's on equal footing, regardless of mm-hmm. what you wanted to integrate with the tool.
0: Right, so that design is dog-fooded by you first, yeah. and that you know it's got a good chance then of also working. I think that's a, a great approach. I like the fact that you sort of have small print when you're talking to your manager as well. <laughs> that's
1: great.
2: <laughs> it's very adversarial sometimes. No, no, it's just there's always a difference between, especially in open source, like if you're being mm. paid to do open source, there's always this internal friction of they're paying you to solve some problem with their cloud that if you follow the dots long enough, goes back to your salary and justifies paying someone to work in open source to begin with, right? And that's not evil, okay? Like we need that to support open source. But as an open source maintainer, you always have to be juggling what's the best thing for the community? What's the best thing for this project long term? and how can I satisfy both of these forces, which are very legitimate on either end. It's just somebody has to be making these priorities. Now I have a PM on my project, it's Ralph Squatchy, and he works at Microsoft, and he's able to give me all sorts of information about what Microsoft needs. So I need to be doing my own PM work, where I'm talking to like, end users who don't work at any vendor, right? I need to be talking to the person who submitted me a bug report and asked for something really weird and I have no idea what they're doing or why and I need to piece together and figure out as a whole what the community is doing because in open source you don't usually have this like nice orderly like feedback process. You've got to like go out to the people and like really tease out what they're doing and how they're using things. So you kind of have to be your own PM, I guess. And then mm. Be really good at justifying still doing those things to your boss.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you ever wish it wasn't open sourced? Do you ever wish you could just build it for one specific case and do that really well?
2: So I've done that with some things. I made a pony cluster that transcodes all my videos. I've transcoded hundreds of videos and put them up on Plex using a little home cluster. Mm. And that's all written in Go. And I had so many people ask me, like, please open source this. And I refused because I had no desire whatsoever to support it. And I didn't want it to do anything other than encode my movies, right? But this didn't fall into that category. This is, I wanted something to work for everyone, right? I can only design what works for me for the most part. I don't know. Some people, really cool. I'm sure they can like pull out of their hat what other people need without talking to them. But I can't do that. So by making it open source, I kind of like put a lemonade stand out on the driveway and I'm like, come to me and tell me like how you want it to work. What do you need? What are you doing with it? So that I could evolve a design that didn't just work for me. Like I can code so much more quickly if it wasn't open source. And it is frustrating because you're like, I could have finished this thing two years ago, but what I would have finished wouldn't be what anyone wanted to use. So what's the point?
0: Mm. Would it just work for me? That's great. And the project has, I saw on the GitHub repo, 45
2: contributors. So that's a I lot of people. I'm yeah. so proud of that. So one of the things I really love to do, and I do this with Write Speak Code, and I do this with Women Who Go, sometimes with Gophers too, where I like to get people into open source. I like to have, be a main, that's the funnest thing about being a maintainer, just like I want to be a manager so I can hire people. I want to be an open source maintainer so I can bring people in and help them have that first project that lets them safely learn Go or how to do, you know, and Git or learn cloud native things like Docker and Kubernetes. There's so much gatekeeping going on that's just involved with, I don't know the right people to get involved that again, I like to put something out there and just like put as many like welcome signs as I can to be able to go, I'll mentor you in this. We have a Go CLI, which is one of the easiest things to get started with in Go and in open source projects. Cause it's usually small scope, very straightforward and it doesn't interconnect with a lot of other things. Mm. And so people have responded to that. They've taken me up on that offer and helped out with a whole bunch of things. It's kind of funny, Porter actually has more regular contributors from the community than from any one vendor or like a big company like Microsoft. It's mostly an end user community project.
0: Mm. And so of course the companies, and particularly your company, benefits from all those contributions as well. And that must help your, when you come to sell internally that this is how we're doing it, that must help your storytelling, doesn't it?
2: I think so. I mean, there's always a learning period for a new contributor. It depends on where they're starting from, where, you're putting more into them than honestly you're getting back into the project. And we have to just acknowledge that's gonna happen and then maybe be realistic with how much time you have to give people. But maybe it's three PRs or five PRs or maybe it's just one, it depends on the contributor where you're putting more in and you're mentoring them and you're trying to help them get excited and you want them to have a good experience. But eventually you're not actually giving as much and you're getting a steady stream of pull requests and fixes. So, I've had a mm. couple wonderful people like Thorsten Hans, who has been contributing to my project enough that he's able to help us tackle V1 milestone issues. And these are things that make or break whether or not we're gonna ship this summer, for example. Mm. And he's knocking them out of the park, and I'm really excited. So, you know, there was a little bit of time where you're like, will they stick with it? Will they keep doing this? And now they're like, yes, they're here every week giving me new things to review and I didn't need to make it happen. I just had to lay it out and go, this is what it should look like. And you you put like a message in the bottle in your backlog and someone picks it up. And that's really Mm. great. Nice one.
0: Sounds like a great project for people to anyone interested in getting involved. I feel like they ought to head over because not all open source projects are that welcoming to people new. So I think that's great.
2: Yeah, I would love anyone who's interested. It's porter.sh slash contribute. And that'll walk you through what are the types of things you could do on the project and how to get started. There's a tutorial that'll walk you through making your first change to Porter so you can understand it. And there's little tutorials that'll explain what a bundle is because I've been talking very fast and very excitedly and maybe none of it made sense. But there's things on the website that kind of lead you through what this works at, at a pace that you're comfortable with. I'd love it if people were interested in contributing. And like I said, it's good for people who don't know Go too. Like you can learn Go and do this at the same time.
3: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Cockroach Labs, the makers of CockroachDB, the most highly evolved database on the planet. With CockroachDB, you can scale fast, survive anything, and thrive everywhere. It's open source, Postgres wire compatible. And Kubernetes friendly, which means you can launch and run it anywhere. For those who need more, you can build and scale fast with Cockroach Cloud, which is Cockroach DB hosted as a service. It's the simplest way to deploy Cockerage DB and is available instantly on AWS and Google Cloud. With Cockroach Cloud, a team of world-class SREs maintains and manages your database infrastructure so you can focus less on ops and more on code. Get started for free with a 30-day free trial or try their new forever free tier that's super generous. Head to CockroachLabs.com changelog to learn more. Again, CockroachLabs.com slash changelog.
0: Well, we should talk a bit about Go, I suppose. This is, uh, after all, a Go podcast. What was behind the decision to use Go? Was it just sort of a default? It's almost like the default language now for these types of tools. But what was it in particular for you that made you excited about using Go for this?
2: So what drew me into Go for my very first project and what I'm still using it for, you know, year after year, is to make a single binary that I can distribute on any platform and have them run my command line tool. That is so valuable to me, again, because of the user experience. I'm not asking them to first install Python before you can install my CLI or something like that. Like not knocking Python, but downloading a binary is a lot less of an ask for people, especially if you're asking them to juggle versions and things like this, like Go solves that problem really well.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, we won we won that 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 game. That battle. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I think, I think I can say that, yeah. We yeah. won that one.
2: <laughs> it doesn't hurt that, you know, the Docker libraries, for example, uh, Porter is just right up there intermeshed with Docker. Uh, and all of that is written in Go. So you kind of get like first class library support as opposed to eventual translations to other languages. That's usually the second reason why I pick it for even for back end things.
0: Right. And so I wonder then, since it interacts with other tools, does it do that just by treating them as external commands through the command line? Or does some of those mix-ins have, like they import the packages properly and it's kind of a much tighter integration in that sense?
2: It depends on what it is I'm integrating with and who I expect to do the integration. Ah, so interesting. my integration with Docker, for example, is written by myself and it's maintained by other maintainers of Porter. If someone else wants to contribute to the project, that really isn't where they're contributing. It's kind of code that you write once and it kind of just sits there and gently settles like a foundation. Whereas other things like plugins or mixins, mixins is, I've said this a couple times, I apologize, it allows you to quickly use an existing tool like Terraform or any of your cloud providers command line tool like G Cloud or AWS or Azure inside yeah. your bundle with a lot less work. Like it just does a lot of the plumbing for you by default. Yeah. And for those, I expected anyone to want to be able to write them, you know, so a mix in can actually be written in any language. You just need to compile it to something that's executable and can talk over standard in and standard out. So I wanted the barrier nice. to entry to be extremely low for that. I mean, I know some things are super cool, like GRPC, like oh my gosh, like I should have written in that. Everyone tells me that. But I didn't want to prevent someone who's more comfortable using other languages or to be honest, like who wasn't keen on trying to figure out what GRPC is, um to still be able to work with us. It didn't need to be that complicated basically. Yeah. Plugins not written by as many people. It's just not as common to want to integrate Porter with a different storage backend, for example. There's only so many. <laughs> hmm. And so those are written with, again, binaries, but they assume that you can talk NetRPC, for example. Right. Okay. So it, it is a little all over the place from that standpoint, but each person who works on any one of these things are not the same person. So I definitely tried to be like someone who just wants to be able to use a random one-off tool, like Release or something, with Porter should be able to do it in a couple minutes. And there's even templates like for Go, we give you a working mix in that you can just replace whatever command line tool you're using and you're up and running in five, 10 minutes. Um, But they're probably never going to write a plugin. So it's okay that they're different architectures. Yeah, I think that's
0: very interesting. A lot of people I imagine would want the tech stack to be consistent and try and then corral everyone into that rather than this somewhat more flexible approach. I have a project that kind of takes the same approach. Um, And similarly, like with gRPC, I wanted to try and write a plugin for gRPC once. In order to do that, you have to know how to do it because the actual tool sends you a gRPC, like protobuf package through standard in. Mm -hmm. So... So, you know, you really have to be in that world to take part in that. And it is non-trivial. Is, are mix-ins just like JSON lines through standard in and standard out? How do they actually communicate in and out?
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you, more heat. It's more YAML because I <laughs> want it to look like if we looked at a Porter YAML file, okay, it's in YAML and it has steps that say Terraform is going to do this little blurb of logic. And then we're gonna run a magical bash script that has a bit of glue. And then we're gonna call off to kubectl or some other tool, maybe gcloud or AWS, right? And I wanted the mix and author to be able to look at that file and get input that looked like that file. So they didn't have to translate it into something else. Oh. Whatever they saw in that file is what they were gonna get, is uh you know, standard in essentially. And then they execute whatever that command is. So if we were trying to do a Terraform apply, they would essentially go, this is the YAML, and that translates to a command using the Terraform CLI that says apply.
0: Nice. I really like that, actually. You know, that's another thing I think that speaks to your focus on the user experience. It's like, this is familiar now because you've seen it in the Porta file, and now you're writing a mix in, you look, you get the same thing. And honestly, like little things like that, that just reduce that cognitive load, I think really help projects like this.
2: Yeah, I can't stress enough. And it doesn't matter if you're writing a command line tool, you're working with an API, or you're just talking about the general behavior of a system. If there's some existing analog or something that your user has already learned Like, take advantage of that, build on top of it, have them only learn one thing or come to your platform and already be 90% of the way there because you're building on concepts, behaviors, or syntax languages that they already knew. I mean, make them come on your platform and feel like I've got this from the start. You never want to be bragging about, like, you know, (laughs) the slow on ramp to learning your tool or something like that. It's not a badge of honor for sure.
0: Yeah, you don't want Porter ML when, you, when you've got YAML. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that also, I think, applies why, more, in more widely to Go. When you think about interfaces in the standard library, if there are concepts yeah. that have been modelled already like that that people are familiar with, even if it doesn't quite do exactly the thing you want, it's worth trying to see if you can use those types. Some of them are, are really kind of no-brainers, but... Anytime I think you can be self-familiar, self-similar and familiar for people, I think is a great goal. Even in this case, like you end up with slightly different tech for the way mix-ins and plugins work. It's completely justified when you think about the audience. And I think that is important. I, I, I noticed you said that you, you said you're kind of leading towards a version one release some projects take the approach of kind of really rushing to v1 and getting it out there you're taking your time why is that
2: well i'm terrified of commitment right so whatever <laughs> i put out is a 1.0 like yeah. that is how it's going to work for the majority of people mm-hmm. and i won't be able to make changes so that was one piece the other piece is we were very naive when we started we didn't understand how long it would really take to implement everything we wanted. Because when we started, we understood 20% of the problem. We thought we understood 100. We understood 20. <laughs> and we like based our V1 off of, V1 is going to show our vision. Or, I mean, it was very pretentious. <laughs> but we wanted V1 to be that. And then we finished the 20% and we went, During that period of time, we have learned so much, Mm -hmm. one, from using the tool ourselves and getting feedback and hearing all of the different ways people thought to use the tool, which we did not, right? Right. And we realized what the real 100% was. And it's not really the real 100%. The line keeps moving forever. So we very quickly had to decide that we're going to do a V1. And what we wanted to settle on was it had to not have horrible hacks Or bugs or anything like that for the 80% case. We expect people to use the tool in a certain way, and we feel pretty comfortable saying how they're going to use it at this point through feedback. Mm -hmm. And there shouldn't be weird things where we're like, oh, well, you just need to do these three things that would not intuitive at all. And then you can accomplish what you wanted to do. But if eight out of 10 people wanted to do that thing, it needs to be in the V1. It needs to actually just support that for the most Mm -hmm. part. And then any you know awkward bugs that have been lingering. We'd like to clean those up so that you could have something stable. Like people are using it in production right now. They just stick on the same version you know, and know what bugs to avoid. But that's not really great. So that's kind of mm-hmm. our goal for, for V1. I don't think I've ever released a V1, to be honest. I've always worked Ooh. on something post V1. Or mm-hmm. so early it stayed on like 0.1.0 for <laughs> three years so Mm -hmm. it's all kind of new to me i don't know if you have different ideas about what a v1 should be
0: well i tell you i love the fact that you care enough not to just do a v1 too soon like one thing people need from these tools is stability and a bit like how go has the backwards compatibility promise tools like this that do that as well mean that you can rely on them and you can build them into your production workflows and i think that's very important. So that was kind of great to hear that. And the other thing about the twenty, only understanding the 20%, I have a theory, if we really knew how much work was involved in the stuff we're doing, we wouldn't do it. No, we not It's too hard. <laughs> you need to have some level of ignorance, sort of ignorance-driven development where we're like, yeah, it's just this small thing that we're going to do and that's it, we're done. We have to keep believing that, otherwise, you know, we'd never get anywhere.
2: I mean, I think that's what keeps us... As programmers, right? You always think, oh, you somehow manage in your head to boil it down to, if I just know how to make the system do this one thing, everything else is boilerplate or whatever. QED, mm-hmm. the rest of that program, right? I can right. figure it out. And we're always mm-hmm. wrong, and we estimate yeah. wrong every single time because of that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like, I agree with you. If I knew that like getting something to work would actually be a 10-year effort before it was... Amaze balls thing that I had in my head like I'd be too daunting,
1: yes, <laughs> hey you can send pre one o forever I mean have to look <laughs> at terraform goodness Is
2: so many companies thing? though really push for one o hmm. they're very concerned in government hmm. and on other applications they want to see some assurance that one some level of quality control has happened and there's not bugs lurking for them and Two, that we actually think it is good for being in production and we'll stand behind it. And no matter what I told people, they didn't want to see a beta or a you know a zero major, you know, on it. It was like a an adoption blocker, literally for people, which is why we're pushing towards this faster.
0: Hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's a tough balance to strike, I guess, there. Well, it's that time again, everybody. It's time for Unpopular Opinions. <laughs> uh, unpopular opinion. what? I actually think you should probably leave. Uh, unpopular Opinions. Okay, Carolyn, do you have an Unpopular Opinion for us?
2: I do, I do. So being vague up front, I think new contributors have a superpower that maintainers will never have for a project. Mm,
0: interesting.
2: And yeah, digging into that a little bit. Mm. Think of the person who comes up to your project and tells you that it's wrong. It's not solving the same problem or they don't get it. Like, just like Johnny giving me a little bit of grief at the beginning of the show because even though I earnestly tried to describe what Porter did, I missed connecting with him, right? And as a maintainer, oftentimes when you get this feedback, your first instinct is to be very defensive and go, oh.
0: It's Johnny's <laughs> fault.
2: Yeah, exactly. You just don't, <laughs> don't get it. it.
0: You idiot. Yeah. Obviously, yeah.
2: you're not doing the advanced <laughs> really. cool things that I'm doing or something <laughs> like that. You never know. Yeah. But actually, as a maintainer, if you take every single one of those as the honest to goodness truth that you failed to communicate with that person, Example being, I have a a new user guide, a quick start that gets them up and running. They run through it and they still don't get it. That's on me, right? Mm. My landing page, someone comes to it, they read about Porter or anything, you know, and they go, when, when I use it, these are feedback that you can take and go, this is what I was missing. And you'll never see that as a maintainer. If you wrote it or you've been working for it a long time, if you're like neck deep, In that project, you will Mm -hmm. never have this perspective ever. And every single person who's willing to make themselves vulnerable and tell you that there's a problem, that they didn't get it, it doesn't matter. Like, they may be a jerk about it, but like, think about that feedback. They wouldn't have said it unless you had failed in communicating somewhere, Um, or you legitimately had gaps and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. I've been using that constantly to improve. Docs add missing features, go, oh, my gosh, I never thought someone would do this. <laughs> and yeah. if I had the same five contributors to my project day in, day out for three years, would we have been more productive? Yes. Would we have gotten our mental model from this is the 20% we need to do to the 100% to understand like what really is there and what we should have been doing and saying and communicating? We never would have gotten that. Those new contributors are like your project's lifeblood and you need it not just the first year, but every year for your project to understand where you could be doing better.
0: Oh, you make a great case. It's a difficult one to argue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what we do is we test these on our GoTime FM Twitter account. Mm. So at some point we will check. But yeah, I mean, it is a great point. And I must say the documentation on the Porter website is kind of surprisingly good for an open source project. Yeah. Like you can tell this has been a focus I mean, it's not just like that it's got everything you need. It's sort of like it looks good. You know, it feels like very friendly when you're there. It oh. encourages
1: contribution. It's like, yeah, like, like now I'm curious. I'm like, hey, I want to know more about this. How can I contribute something? All right. Yeah, contributing is like the number three
0: link in the site nav. So it's like mm-hmm. it is like a first class concern, isn't it here?
2: I mean, especially in an open source project, you really want people to interact with you. That's the only way you know what's going on in your community. There's no tracking in Porter or any most open source projects. Like, you don't know who's using it. They don't know what features that they use. You don't know if it's successful, if there's errors happening. There's a whole bunch of information that if you're respecting people's privacy, you have no access to. And so you really want that open communication in whatever medium someone wants to chat with you, whether it's GitHub issues or a mailing list or if they're brave, Slack, you know.
1: So would you be open to having something that anonymously collected some usage metrics to know what the most used aspects of Porter are?
2: I'm a tinfoil hat. <laughs> like, I would never turn, I work at Microsoft and I don't share anonymous information about like my Windows computer. So I personally wouldn't feel comfortable about that and i'm not sure that there aren't other ways that we could get high quality information by doing usability studies having people sit down and watch them use the project every time i do a workshop for example we always have an extra person or two who's in the back who's just watching where the stumbling points are where people have mm-hmm. trouble keeping track of what questions are being asked and like there are stealth usability settings. <laughs> and oh, really? I, I find that to be incredibly useful. As much as it's tempting to want to have tracking information, I've never seen anyone respond to it positively. I think Homebrew tried to do that, and there was a big brouhaha. And it's not worth the loss of trust. I put it intended. <laughs> Especially for a tool that deals with credentials. Like Porter, at some point, transiently does have azure credentials or google credentials or aws credentials you know in memory as it's doing certain things it's necessary to order you know to install things and any sort of tracking or phone home like i can't imagine Mm -hmm. that being okay very cool these stealth usability tests that you do you don't like
0: sneak into people's houses and that do you
2: well i mean Maybe no, <laughs> like we went to DevOps days, Minneapolis, and we you know we ran a big workshop with like a hundred people and just paid attention to where the slowdowns were, where people suddenly just got completely stuck doing install and setup, or someone would write down what all the questions were so that we could look back and see what what isn't clicking because usually with workshops, we're running through our quick starts. we're running through our examples like, this is a live test of our material, right? And wherever it's not working, we want to know. Mm.
0: And I guess if these files ends up being used in lots of places in in other open source projects, you may end up with lots of Porter files around that are open source that you would be able to potentially go and look at. I'm thinking like a way to find out how people are using it and what they're using and stuff.
2: I've seen that sometimes. It's unfortunate in in Porter's case because it's deployments. And companies don't share that, to be honest. Uh. A lot of our users are in companies. So I've seen people's side projects of how they use Porter. But anything that a company is doing, it's on a private repo somewhere. I never know. But Mm. as a maintainer, people are usually very willing to show you anonymized things. When they're asking for help, Mm -hmm. ask them questions. Who do you work for? What are you doing with this? What would you like to see it do? Can I see your porter.yml file? Because I'll be able to troubleshoot this faster for you. Mm. No one has to share anything. But those are other ways that you can get a whole bunch of information that's super useful without being shady.
0: Yeah. So people don't commit these porter files in their GitHub repos alongside their code if they're open source then. Because I have a few projects that you know, I actually have like little yeah. deploy scripts in there. And they of course require credentials and most people won't have access. I like the fact that when I make changes to that, it's tracked, it's visible, I can either do PRs even, and have people review it. But also it's tagged in a way to the various versions throughout history as well. So I can go and get a different version and I know how to deploy that version of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. it depends on what people are deploying. So... I would love to see projects that distribute open source software. They distribute binaries or Docker files to also distribute a bundle that goes with it, Mm. that can deploy it. And in that case, it's an open source project and you would see what the bundle looks like, which is great. But what I'm seeing a lot of people do instead is the author themselves doesn't know about Porter, does not have something like that. And it's a person consuming another piece of software who wrote a bundle. Like, I feel like there's a bit of an adoption gap, which is why we don't see a lot of open source projects yet distributing their software with bundles.
0: Yeah, but if you have a project, I understand like if I have a website, say my own blog, personal blog website that I've written, obviously, because I'm a programmer and we write our own blog software. If I wanted to deploy that, I'm the only one that can do it. But if it's an open source project that's for writing blogs, I might want them to be able to deploy into their own, say Google cloud or DigitalOcean or wherever.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So like one bundle I've been working on, but it's kind of like a beast is I'd like to be able to install discourse with a bundle. I don't know if you've ever installed that yourself, but there's a lot of infrastructure dependencies in there. If you want like a really nice installation of discourse, cause you're dealing with CDNs, you're dealing with mail servers. Actually, you've got a virtual machine, there's some Docker containers thrown in, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, and it's kind of hard to coordinate. I would love to see projects like that, if people could make bundles and submit it to them and be like, would you be willing to... I mean, Discourse gets paid to install (laughs) (laughs) their software for people. I think that's part of their consulting model. So maybe they wouldn't be too keen on making a bundle and then giving it (laughs) away. But in general, stuff like that, I think would be really great. I just... I don't think we're there yet. I'd love to be there, though. Um, It's exciting, isn't it? What a cool project. I genuinely
0: think this is right for a few of my projects now, having spent the time and seen this. yeah, And I hope others will give it a go as well. Check it out at porter.sh if you haven't. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. And that that's really flown. I hope for the listener that's also gone as as fast because I think that means it was useful and informative and brilliant. carolyn thank you so much for joining us today. I uh, would love to well, have you back you. sometime.
2: Yeah, I would love to come back. I love chatting with all you guys. It's, this is a <laughs> wonderful show. I really enjoy listening to Go Time. So oh, it's it's that's nice. it's kind of a Star Trek experience to be on here too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah oh great well oh that's uh we're not used to people being nice to us we don't know what to do <laughs> johnny could you just offset that for me please just give us a quick insult and i'll set me right again
1: M- matt you suck thank you mate appreciate that there you go all right no problem
0: <laughs> okay i'm back uh okay brilliant thank you johnny borsico always a pleasure Likewise. and carolyn thank you so much again uh, we'll you. see you next time
4: Thanks for listening to this episode of GoTime. If this is your first time with us, subscribe now at gotime.fm or in your favorite podcast app, just search for GoTime, you'll find us. And if you enjoy the show, please send it to a friend or a colleague who might also enjoy it. We truly appreciate it. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next time on GoTime, Matt is joined by Ria Datani, David Wicks, and Rick James, I mean Chris James for a deep dive on test-driven development. We'll have that episode ready for you next week.
2: cool project it is i'm terrible at selling anything you know i'm always like to do you whatever makes sense and then i forget to actually explain (laughs) when it would make sense yeah
1: no.
2: i think this looks
1: really interesting um it's i mean from from my from my viewpoint this is a like i was aware of cnab and and but i was like trying to place it and then Mm -hmm. like having like concrete implementations of the spec i think i'm like oh, okay, now I, I get the why of this, right? And, and, oh, that's great. And I think this has definitely helped me. Now I have a lot to-do list to check this out and also see if uh, there are some ways I could help make the, make the project better in some way. Looking forward to diving in. Oh
2: my goodness. I'd probably really? swoon if I saw a PR from you.
1: So <laughs> just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Can you send it. Send
0: me a link. Oh, <laughs>
2: Three <laughs> worms for the price of one.
1: <gasps> so I'm swooning. I'll faint.
0: I'll faint like that, like a proper <laughs> olden
1: days person. I'm oh. swooning over some text. But okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant.